<laughs> Leave meeting. No, I'm kidding. Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me announce today's very, very, very special guest. Dr. Jorge Jimenez is a senior engineer in the medical device industry working with medication delivery solutions. He has also recently completed his PhD in bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Jorge's work spans from drug delivery with the specific application of a novel method for the disease ocular cystinosis to community education of Hispanic students in the Pittsburgh area. Lastly, Jorge is a major advocate for black and brown students in STEM and his research is quite different because he pushes from service, excuse me, because he pushes for service to the underserved rather than just professional development. As an ongoing mentee of Dr. Jimenez, I am continually inspired by his commitment to his values, both inside and outside of research. So Jorge, thank you so much for being here today. Virtual applause. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy to chat and I am always excited to hear what you're up to and all the great uh, intersecting points. <laughs> Aw, thanks. And I know you're very busy with your work, so we'll try to keep this brief. Appreciate it. Of course. So I'll just start off with your engagements in both uh, cannabis and HIV AIDS, and then we can transition to um, scientific authorities and communicate community engagement in science as our final topics. So first off, as we've seen a lot in the news with President Biden and lawmakers around marijuana legislation, you know, on the national level, different state levels, we're just seeing a really intense culture change happening in the U.S. to being much more pro-weed. But we see that Black and brown people are still facing the war on drugs, you know, and at the same time, corporations are starting to make their own money. So I'm just curious as a bioethics researcher, you know, what is what does this transition mean in terms of how black and brown communities are going to be impacted? And I'd like to know your opinion, Dr. Humanitz. Uh yeah, I guess like I wanna just kind of paint the picture of like these cannabis shops that feel like you're shopping at like an Apple store or something, right? Like like all of those places have like different forms of cannabis, right? Whether they're, and what I mean by different forms, I'd maybe, maybe more of a scientific word is like formulations. Like there's different packaging or uh, of that cannabis, whether it's in the original flower or like a vape cartridge or uh, in an edible digestible form. Um, and whenever I think about like my research and like drug delivery is just like, these formulations and how they, you know, help on like different aspects of care, right? Um, whether you're smoking it, whether you're ingesting it, I, I, I have a feeling that they do different things for people. And so I guess like with the, like, with that being said, the passage of new legislation uh, and its relation to uh, potentially the war on drugs on, on black and brown people is like I'm like curious to see how how they describe 
and like utilize those different dosages within that like policy narrative are like are these researchers going to like carefully like quantify the dosage amount and like relate it to the formulation and then the like efficacy of i don't know improving ptsd or or mm-hmm. or whatever right like and like I am kind of worried that that type of granularity, which like at least I'm familiar with like an FDA approved drug, right? Mm-hmm. Like will be like too prescribed, right? Too prescribed for brown and black people mm-hmm. who have like continually just like used marijuana in various forms at their personal use, right? And mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering that like, if these Apple store <laughs> like dispensaries who are not owned by like uh, like brown brown people and maybe they're more in this like corporate landscape, like I'm wondering if that corporate culture to have maybe manufacturability or like some type of like language to fulfill these policies are just going to lose sight of the way that black and brown people have exp- ha- like have experienced marijuana um in their lifetime i guess as a as a as a quick example is this like if if someone has uh always eaten like a five milligram like gummy candy to like i don't know feel like their arthritis is going down again i don't know (laughs) right (laughs) and then like uh a researcher who gets funding to like based on like the biden administration stuff is like, well, you only need like 2.5 milligrams of this to see efficacious uh, thera- therapeutic levels to treat your arthritis. Like now this person who like would potentially go to this Apple store pharmacy <laughs> would then have to like have to deal with the the legality of like having to increase their prescription on on their previously used like oral dosage form of of marijuana if that makes sense Mm, yeah I feel like one thing you're really getting at that I didn't think of but is totally a concern is just what like the power really gets taken out of the consumer's hands once it's a considered to be a pharmaceutical like just like the idea of prescribing something instantly puts the power in the doctor's hands and removes things from the patient's hands so them being able to figure out and moderate their doses and things like that things like that make make a lot harder when you have you know these I guess what are the the standards, the medical standards that doctors have to reach because, you know, we can't even say that it's the individual's fault in this when this is just a, a whole system that is just made to like, I guess, disempower people. That's deep. Uh, yeah, yes. And like, right, these are, right, this is like a very hypothetical way of like looking at it. But when we're making legislation or potentially giving grants or (laughs) or like research dollars to like find these like from the from the stem perspective like we want to get as precise as possible right like we want to like 
like have design controls on on some of these like uh i would say technologies <laughs> or like formulations mm -hmm. um and so again i think that as you know scientists or technologists like that sounds so so good and like you know they make your 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 research more sound and more more rigorous right with by having these like constraints but if if black and brown people aren't leading those conversations then then it just becomes even more of a, a harmful harmful technology mm, yeah it just seems like there's so much potential you know a lot of people are really excited about the policy the legalization and weed being quote unquote more accessible but i guess the forms of accessibility are just going to look so much more different because you know, everywhere where it goes legal, it it does become more criminalized. Like, for example, Colorado, you know, the first one of the first to get things legal, they arrest <laughs> more black and brown people <laughs> than anywhere where we, you know, per capita, because there's not a lot of black and brown people in Colorado. So <laughs> I don't true. even think I it's don't. like a matter of just making a bunch of assumptions but looking at like the impact of what's already happening now it's yeah it's very worrisome that a policy like this like it, it just seems so good it seems so beneficial it seems like access will increase but we have to think about once again is is power moving out of black and brown people's hands to be able to take care of themselves because this is something that we've had in our communities, you know, your auntie does it, your cousin does it, your own, you got the one uncle who does it. Like, we cannot pretend like this hasn't been around in our communities for generations. So yes, it, it would be great for us to have scientific knowledge, you know, in, I'll say, I'll say the Western science community, we want them to know about it, but also all these years of using it, I think we do know a little something, so making sure that we stay in power just mm. yeah so yeah exactly I, I think that you you you, you kind of like rounded out that like topic more clearly than I could convey <laughs> but you're right like it's really just the that you know people have historically and traditionally have been using this right you know as we give policy you know give policies and, and people kind of power with this it's like where does that where does that go <laughs> Um, uh, and I guess to get into, you know, our, I mean, we've already been talking about ethics for a minute and I do want to say that, like, I have to admit you and I have collaborated on projects regarding race and research practices. <laughs> so I do know that like research ethics are something that are of interest to you. They're important to you. And it's something that you devote time to, um, so having your expertise on just any sort of ethical implications of the research world of like what, what, what could happen if we fund these projects, I think is incredibly important. So thank you for that. And then moving in to talking more about community, since community education is such a serious part of your drug delivery research, what do you think is, what is the importance of having communities um, engaged in research? Yeah, so um, 
I think I'll, I'll just kind of like preface as like, I, I feel like my drug delivery research was a little bit like, out, like, like my traditional like PhD work was more in the laboratory, but I did like more of the drug delivery and like materials education as the community engagement. So what I was really doing was just like at least trying to teach people about like the fundamentals of of these like materials that we use for drug delivery applications. And so as as just like an educational resource, like I, I was really interested in being like a, a connector between, you know, this like academic silo that's kind of hard to get into or like, you know, collaborate with. But one of the most important things that like mentors in, in public health that I've met at the University of Pittsburgh told me is that in order to like do like successful and like well-meaning community engaged research or projects is that like A, you have to be a part of that community. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that you need to like identify as I mean, it would be ethically good <laughs> to be able to identify with the community, but you should definitely spend a good amount of time in that community to 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 sort of build trust and like build that connection. And and what what you'll soon realize is that the community has the answers for themselves a hundred percent of the time. And as academic researchers or, or community-engaged scholars, we can help provide the tools to sort of, you know, help come up with solutions to their community issues or problems. Um, but more than likely, like, if you're not co-collaborating on these tools, then like, you're going to give them an answer that is not going to be usable for that community. And then I think that no matter how good intentions you have, I think that if you don't do it in that way, you kind of just fail and you just, you just kind of take the resources from that community, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of maybe hinting at an answer to the next question. So I kind of want to preface this, um, with, you know, continuing the idea of like reaching the community and getting to, to the communities that are really most impacted, like how key they are, because I feel like there's this, um, this diagram, if you look up like aid statistics and it shows the amount of deaths, it shows the amount of new cases, and it also shows the total, um, amount of people living with HIV AIDS over time, right? And we were just discussing how, you know, we've seen all these pharmaceutical developments um, like have positive impacts on the general population where you saw this like sharp decline in, you know, the amount of deaths. And you also have seen somewhat of a decline in the amount of new cases and as a result, like people are living longer, which is great. But then we're starting to see this plateau now where, you know, people like 
are deaths are no longer being decreased. The same amount of people with HIV AIDS are dying each year. Like this is the reality we're coming to. So I guess we're worried about this, you know, idea of not everybody being reached. I guess what are the communities that we need to reach? And like, what does that mean policy-wise in terms of how the administration thinking about, you know, the national government and their funding of care and treatment? How do you think things should be funded with the idea of community in mind? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, like the, the graph that you were sort of describing, um, you know, I think it has a collection of like all demographics and it's just like, you know, pers- like number of people in the U.S. And I think that there, it, could, it could use some granularity on, on some demographic data uh, and by demographic data, um, you know, maybe age, um, race, you know, self-identified race, right? Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they have some good survey developers with, <laughs> with some qualitative research in their, in their back pocket. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I, like, I think that generally, like, the advent of anti-HIV medications, like, have, like, impact on the HIV and AIDS community and, and it's been helpful, right? Like I again, I I won't say I've done a lot of work with um with that community or have looked at any HIV AIDS uh medication research. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> uh, at like a high level understanding, like I can imagine that there are disparities in who is getting HIV AIDS medication and who is still contracting HIV and AIDS. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And and I've like one one as example, I kind of mentioned that like um, it's actually interesting. Like the health clinics that I went to in Pittsburgh, one of them is called Allies for Health, uh, which is in East Liberty. Um, they you know, they, they will get you uh, prep for free um, and prep being the pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, but it's also, they, I also know that maybe there's less, like maybe, maybe there is less black and brown people going to uh, the specific clinic. Like, um, again, they probably don't report their data, but I imagine that's kind of what it's like in in most of like the health clinics in the U.S. So there could be maybe that there's more um, black and brown people contracting HIV and AIDS, and that plot of deaths happening at the same rate. Um, well, not the same rate, the same um, amount per year uh, is a uh, results or affected or is or affected by um the lack of of education and access to just these like healthcare centers that are that are like lgbtqia centered but we also we also know that heterosexual people can who identify as heterosexual will still can still contract HIV and AIDS, mm. right? So, like, I'm wondering, 
if there are still people who identify as heterosexual who are sleeping with people who identify as LGBTQIA um, and are contracting HIV and AIDS. Again, again, I don't know that research, but mm-hmm. like maybe a heterosexual person like wouldn't want to go to an LGBTQIA health center to get PrEP, right? <laughs> so like what are what are public health departments doing about like PrEP? Or is that, or are they saying like, that's like a gay disease or a queer disease. So like go to this health clinic for PrEP, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Primary care physicians. If again, right, these are assumptions of uh, if people who identify as heterosexuals um, are like have access to healthcare um, and- Right. Yeah, because yeah. like I mean, I I won't say like right. I won't say that like like I'll be honest. Like I'm part of the the queer, the queer community, and there are d like down low people, right? Like there are mm-hmm. dl like there are dl people, and it has like those dl people have caused violence on the trans community, mm-hmm. and like especially like uh, trans people of color. Um, and, and I'm not saying that like trans people of color are the source of HIV and AIDS. Like I'm not saying that at all, but, (laughs) but if they're not, if, if heterosexual identifying people are not, um, aware that, you know, PrEP exists or maybe they are, but they don't want to put it on their health insurance, (laughs) they don't want to get caught. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but um, that's kind of how I feel about that. Is like I think that I think that that graph needs a little bit more granularity, and there could be there could be a little bit more understanding on like removing HIV and AIDS as like a gay or queer disease because it's not. Yeah, yeah. And we actually talked about that a lot, I guess, in class with like there being a major issue with having quote unquote target populations in public health, just because when you target someone like at that point, they're they're an object. And that is like you associate this object with the cause and there's no person, there's no story, there's none of that. And what does that mean in terms of you creating that category and like not only like saying, well, this is the person, this is the target, this is the problem. But then what do you say to other people who don't fit in that category, but still have HIV, you know? Yeah. And then like another like anecdote that kind of came out in the last year is like the monkeypox outbreaks that that kind of that happened. Right. Like, um the queer and gay community came like full force to like stop the spread of that like you know we were able to get um vaccines for it but people were 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 saying that like i'm not going to get monkeypox because i don't sleep with men and it's just like you could have gotten this at a dance party, like it's skin to skin contact, like viruses don't discriminate in the way that we discriminate. And it just, it felt like such a weird, a weird like 
exercise of like, how are we having this conversation again when we just went through like a global pandemic with COVID-19, right? Um, but yeah, like, right, again, target populations, like I'm sure that the vaccine, like no, 100% these vaccines went to like health clinics that treat LGBT cray plus people. Um, and you had to make a certain requirement to get the vaccines. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, public health medicine, we could all afford to be so much more careful as a field, but we're here and it's just like, oh, like, yeah, we're trying. Our idea is that we want to help and heal people and we want to make things available and we want people to be able to safely access marijuana, drugs, treatment, you know, be taken care of as they, you know, deal with HIV, AIDS, and other illnesses. But like, at what cost? Like, <laughs> what, what, what work are we actually doing to make things like easier? Like, what work are we actually doing to make things better? Like, we're interested in it, but there's so much like effort gone towards control and understanding and saying, okay, we're unequal, we're unequal, or, oh, we can see prep works. And then it's like, how are we going to like actually do this in ways that help people and not just say that this is, this is a disease for gay people and only gay people get this disease. We could do better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, for reals, we can do better. Um, and it just sucks that a lot of the, the like work that kind of needs to be done is within like the non, you know, like nonprofits with like, you know, health mm. clinics and like all this stuff. And it's like, all of these are all systems and it's just like, who are designing these systems and, and uh, like these systems are going to perpetuate violence, racism, um, misogyny, homophobia. So yeah, like I, it's just, it's tough. It's really, really tough. And I don't know, like I like talking about it a lot. Like I like being able to have these conversations because like, I'm not saying that this doesn't feel like useful or anything. It's just, it feels, it feels like a space to just like confront all of that and be like, Hold, like this exists. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, like, and we're here just like being able to like talk about it. Right. And that feels so good. Right. That feels good to, to be able to contextualize like our lived experience and our like educational training to just be like, yeah, that's not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's just not good. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's, that's like, a straight facts right there. Because often in our, you know, in being a scientist, researcher, educator, whatever you want to call it, lived experience just, it's like, oh, flattened out, just crushed out, like, your identity as a researcher is only what is prescribed by like in the procedures that you do in your lab or how you choose to act in lab. But like life is so much more like informative than that. Like we have these ways of knowing, like don't tell me that like the only research that 
we're going to have from HIV and AIDS is going on in labs when somebody been sitting on their back porch growing and smoking the same strain for 30 years. Maybe we should pull together more forms of, you know, more forms of knowledge because the community knows how to heal itself. Isn't that what you said earlier? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, and it, it's it's tough. It's really, really tough. Um, yeah, like there's a lot of changes happening and it's good to see it in our, in our lifetimes. Um, yeah, I just hope that re- regardless of how things move forward, that there's, you know, space to have a dialogue about this. Um, if that dialogue leads to opportunities for people like you to 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 be able to like work um and get paid to to do this right like i said give you the money (laughs) right give you the money like i like pay the pay the community people right like and like i don't know like i i will say that i learned a lot about like community in pittsburgh even though there wasn't a lot of like Latin Latinx individuals there, um, I did find it. But again, I learned a lot from the Black women in our community to like understand what that means in general. And I am just like so thankful that I had the opportunity to 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 learn from them and and you know support their efforts, um, even though like it never felt like enough you know like I feel like like I was just like I want like everyone to like pay black women and like support them like both right and, and I'm like you know I'm talking about like academics but I'm also like thinking about like the DJ queer community scene in like Ooh, Pittsburgh I, I'm just like man like like I'm in Salt Lake City right now and I was just like I wish I could go dancing to like some of those dance parties you know (laughs) yeah and then oh my god like even even at some of these dance parties for like pride we would have um a mobile health clinic like outside of outside of the shows or the the club and you can get tested for hiv and aids and you can use that as your your ticket entry oh cool look at the community taking care of itself yeah it's like test me <laughs> I was just like hey I gotta go dance like yeah <laughs> nice well that was oh, those are all the questions I had for today I thought that this was a really good discussion I knew that you were the perfect person to um task this with so once again thank you okay, thank you for having me thank you guys for joining us today And we'll be in with a new episode soon.